Hi, dear listeners. Welcome to this new episode of my podcast, A Digital Tomorrow. Today, I got the huge pleasure of being joined by Don Tapscott. Don Tapscott is one of the world's leading authorities on the impact of technology on business and societies, having authored or co-authored more than 16 books. He's um, well, coined many concepts that are part of the business lexicon today, and well, he's currently co-founder and executive chairman of the Blockchain Research Institute, adjunct professor in SEAD, and many more things. So it's an absolute pleasure, to, uh, Don, to host you today. Great to be here as well. Uh, I would like to start maybe from the very beginning. If you could please share your uh, personal journey with my listeners. Oh, sure. Um, well, I'm dating myself here, but in the late 1970s, I got a job at Canada's Bell Labs. Uh, it's called Bell Northern Research. And they were trying to figure out how regular people, managers, professionals in the office, would use computers. Because in the 1970s, the only people who used computers were programmers. Secretaries weren't even using them. And um, we had this crazy idea that everyone would use one and they would become a communications tool. So we did some research. We had a group of 50 people that we essentially created Microsoft Office for in 1979. Uh, email, word processing, document handling, time management, database, financial um, management, uh, presentation tools, and so on. And then another group used a calendar and a telephone and a secretary and typing pool and you know, pens and papers and, and so on. And we found that the group that used the technology uh, performed better, they had more fun, but they did communicate differently. So I wrote a couple of books about this um, in the 1980s. Nobody read them. <laughs> I think my mother bought most of the copies. Uh, but then um, in the early 90s, I started writing bestsellers, Paradigm Shift in 93, which is obviously a big book. And the digital economy, they say, was the first bestseller about the web. And, um, and uh, you know, there have been a bunch of great books since then, uh, big books, some where the timing was terrible. <laughs> I wrote a book in 1995 about privacy. It was called, Who Knows? Safeguarding Your Privacy in a Network World. And I think my mother bought most of those as well. But, um, but ba anyway, based in, uh, back in the early 1990s, I created a think tank that does investigation into how technology changes the world, opportunities and also the problems. And um, it's uh, been a fun, fun ride uh, uh, ever since. And I'm still going at it today with the Blockchain Research Institute. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much for, for sharing this. And actually, what I wanted to ask you now is related to what you said now. I wanted to ask you, like, um, how is technology uh, impacting our businesses, our societies? Are we ready for this change? Uh, are companies ready as well? Well, um, how is it impacting? Hugely. Are we ready for change? No. Um, many businesses are just trying to figure this stuff out. Uh, blockchain, for example, but also as a society, I, I, I don't think we're ready at all. Um, now, I'll tell you a personal story. In 94, in the digital economy, the subtitle was Promise and Peril. 
in the age of networked intelligence. And I was very upbeat about the internet, but I also wrote a section on the dark side. I said, some things could go wrong. You know, I said, we could lose our privacy, check. I said, um, we could see a bifurcation of wealth where the economy grows, but the middle class is shrinking, check. I said, uh, I think the internet will bring us together, but we could have a fragmentation of public discourse and people end up in their own little self-reinforcing echo chambers, check. There were a whole bunch of these things that I was worried about that did happen. So this is a big mission of mine right now is to build a new or to, to engage the world, if you like, in thinking about a new social contract for the digital age. Call it a declaration of interdependence, where we find creative new ways of solving these problems that we're not equipped to handle. Mm -hmm. uh, thank you for, for sharing this. And I know that one of the books that you um, wrote alongside your son Alex, it's called The Blockchain Revolution. It's actually a very famous uh, best uh, seller. So we talk now about technology in general, but I wanted to ask you about blockchain more specifically. Um, how do you think that blockchain is changing the world? And how did you realize um, about this? What made you, made you decide to enter the blockchain world, create the, the Blockchain Research Institute, etc.? Well, in the digital economy, um, I wrote about the internet and 20 years later, I was asked to write the anniversary edition. So I had to think about where have we been and where are we going? And I came to the conclusion that we've been through a first era of the digital age. Uh, mainframes, mini computers, PCs, the internet, the web, the mobile web, the cloud, big data, social media. And now we're entering a second era where technology infuses itself throughout everything. The physical world is becoming smart. It's not just people that communicate, do transactions. Where we have technologies that learn, um, they can even learn to do things they weren't programmed to do. Uh, we have uh, drones and robots and, and virtual worlds. The metaverse has finally come of age. And I came to the conclusion that the foundational technology for this whole next period would in fact be blockchain. Um, and the reason is it represents the second era of the internet. For 40 years, we've had an internet of information, right? That's what the internet's about. But now we're getting an internet of value or anything of value from assets, you know, that are owned by somebody, money, securities, intellectual property, that are identities, um, contracts, deeds, cultural assets like art or music or votes. A vote is an asset something of value that belongs to somebody. Any asset can be managed, stored, communicated, transacted in a secure and private way, peer to peer. And trust is not achieved by a middleman. It's achieved by cryptography and collaboration and some clever code. So this is the internet of value. Now, another way to think about it since the book is the term web three has become popular, mm -hmm. essentially, um, referring to the same thing. And uh, we never used the Web3 originally because um, it was associated with uh, Tim Berners-Lee and the Web 3.0, th that term, that meant something very different than what we mean today. Back then, it Web 3.0 referred to the semantic web and so on. 
Today, Web3 refers to the internet of value. And it kind of goes like this. Web1 was the read web. The web was a platform for presentation of content. We went to the web and we received content. Web2 was the read-write web. It was a platform not for presentation, but for computation. We could do things. We went to the internet and we entered into Wikipedia or we created chats and social media or, we, uh, or whatever. Both of those were the first era of the internet information, right? Web3 is a big change. It's about value. It's the read, write, own web where we get to interact with value and we get to retain that value rather than it being taken away from us by big technology companies and banks and, and so on. So web one and two was the internet of information. Web three is the internet of value. That's how those concepts hang in together. I'm glad I got to share that because I haven't really shared that uh, on a video uh, or a podcast before. I see. I see. Well, that's great. And I know we're all talking a lot about Web3 lately, but how far are we from, from Web3 being like a, a reality? I know it's already a reality, but how far are we from Web3 like, like being the reality? Well, it'll, there'll never be a day where we wake up and say it's a reality. And it's very uneven. You know, some of the stuff is happening faster than we talked about in blockchain revolution. By the way, thanks for the mention of the book. It did turn out to be the big book. I got lucky with the timing on that and with my author, uh, co-author, my son. But um, I was just in Korea, actually. That I don't know how many copies that book sold in Korea, but like I met thousands of people it seems and every one of them had read the book so um i just got back actually a couple of days ago so um in some areas it's it's taken off i mean in the book we talked about crypto collectibles non-fungible tokens and um i mean that thing just like took off really fast. Now, who would figure the term non-fungible token would be more accessible than our term crypto collectibles? But anyway, there's no there's no sense to, to that. But um, you know what's happening with digital assets, the financial industry, tokenization of uh, carbon credits, the rise of these platforms with protocol tokens and governance tokens, CBDCs. Um, you know, I figured that would take decades take off. China's rolling its CBDC out around the world. So some of it has moved faster, others slower. I mean, we in the, in the book, we talked about supply chains. You got trains and boats and planes and trucks and information moving around with paper and email and faxes and phone calls and all these traditional systems like EDP and ERI, uh, uh, sorry, uh, uh, ERP and EDI. You have various middlemen agents and transfer agents and escrow agents and, and banks. And there's a three-day settlement period for, for payments and borders and tax authorities. You know, no wonder our supply chains are a mess. What if they were just a shared network state? A single version of the truth, real-time transactions, transparency into everything. Big idea, but that's moved slower than we thought because it turns out it's a real challenge 
to get all of your partners and your competitors to agree in a in a in a supply chain about standards and about how it's all going to work. I mean, what is a bill of lading? So organizations like BITA, Blockchain and Transport Alliance, have come together to solve this problem, but this is going to take a while. So for those who say, well, this is all moving kind of slowly, don't interpret that to mean that this is not important. The best interpretation is to mean this is so important, it's changing much more fundamental things than the Internet of Information did, and it's going to take a while. Mm -hmm. I see. Well, it's funny that you mentioned uh, CBDCs and digital yuan because, well, you know, I precisely uh, co-authored a report for the Blockchain Research Institute on, on digital yuan and cross-border uh, payments. So I think these areas are, of course, very interesting. And there is no doubt that blockchain has a, well, a huge you know, application and a real use case when it comes to finance. But I wanted to ask you, like, is there any other industry um, where you think blockchain can make can make such a huge difference. I don't know. Let's say healthcare, trade finance, like any industries where you also see this huge value, this huge potential of blockchain. Well, pick an industry. You know, we're we're studying twelve. Every one of them is ripe for massive disruption. But don't go over finance so fast because you know th this is a really big one. I mean. FinTech is sort of a new coat of paint on the wall of the bank. DeFi, decentralized finance, is a thousand times more impactful. What that represents is replacing virtually everything that banks do with software. Now, that's going to take a while, of course, but you don't need a bank, in theory, um, to move money money can be moved on networks to store money money or securities or any asset can be stored securely on networks to lend money there are whole blockchain based lending systems that are emerging now with smart contracts to make sure you don't get into trouble um, so the, those are three of the eight or nine things that that banks do now the banks aren't going to take this sitting down. They're working hard to, to avoid disintermediation and to create new value in the middle, in, in the digital economy, I called it, to re-intermediate. And in the digital economy, I said the opportunities to re-intermediate may be bigger than the disintermediation dangers. Example I used was, was I said the, the bookstore industry, bookstores are in the middle between publishers and readers, they will go away. But I said something new could get created in the middle that would be even bigger. Well, that six months later, after the book came out, amazon.com was incorporated, mm -hmm. one of the biggest companies in the world. Mm -hmm. So financial services is a really big one. Um, you know, off the top of my head, one that I have a great passion for is not really an industry, it's for everybody. And it's about our digital identity. You know, that the, the, the virtual uh, uh, you owns or, or, or creates the asset class of the digital age. You create data at, at, 
but it, the virtual you may know more about you than you do because you can't remember what you bought a year ago or said a year ago your exact location a year ago what medication you have what diagnosis you have what, what you got out of that test and so on but you create the data but it's sort of like digital feudalism right you grow some produce and then the landlord takes it away well you create this digital data and it's taken away by this new species of business called digital conglomerates and um, there are five companies that are half of NASDAQ. And uh, the problem with these companies are not that they're monopolies. The problem is they're owning the economy more and more. And they take the data away from you. You're left with a few digital cabbages. And you can't use this data to plan your life. You can't monetize it. You can't but secure it. And it's probably going to be hacked. And your privacy is being undermined. And people say, well, Don, privacy is the foundation of, uh, 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 or, or privacy is, is dead. Get over it. You know, if you got nothing to hide, what's your problem? This is silliness because privacy is the basis of freedom. And we need to get our digital identities back so that we can manage them responsibly for ourselves. So there are many hundreds, I would say it's thousands of people that are working on this right now. And it's a great passion of mine. Because if we don't get this right, I don't think there can be prosperity and I don't think that there can be freedom. Mm -hmm. Well, I think we could like talk for hours about uh, digital identities <laughs> and privacy, <laughs> but I'm going to, to skip to the next question because that topic is indeed very interesting, but, but also very long you know, to cover. I want to ask you, for example, about um, climate change. You know? How can climate change be, be tackled through technology, through blockchain? Well, thank you for acknowledging that it's a problem because in the United States, a big part of the population thinks that science is a dumb idea and that it's better to, uh, to have your own crazy theories and, about things than to believe in science. <clears throat> Personally, I believe in science and I believe in data. I believe in the truth <clears throat> and uh, we have a big problem. We have to reduce carbon by 90%. Got 20 years to do it. Uh, we have to reindustrialize the planet. And you can see the consequences of delaying this now. I mean, a billion and a half people are losing most of their water supply today. You know, I'm in Canada and everyone said, well, Canada is not gonna be a problem. Ah, British Columbia is on fire every summer. We have crazy floods now, hurricanes, and tornadoes, and, and other things. So, <clears throat> and as the water supply uh, dries up in places like California, you can just see some extremist uh, government in the United States sort of looking at Canada saying, huh, maybe we better take that over. So, uh, to get water. So, no country can succeed in a world that's failing. And we have to solve this problem. So how are we going to do it? Well, I don't know, more speeches from Al Gore, bless his heart. Uh, I don't think so. How about COP 27? Maybe COP 28, we'll get it right. Maybe COP 29, that'll be the one. No, we need to mobilize civilization. Every company, big, little, uh, medium, every government at the federal level, at the state, the local level, we need to mobilize 
uh, every uh, civil society organization, every NGO and every hospital and every university and every school and every kid and every schoolyard and every family to fight this problem. Blockchain and this technology can help. We can tokenize carbon credits and that's underway right now to create liquid markets for carbon and where carbon credits can be built into everything. So you buy the carbon neutral espresso machine in Madrid because it comes with these tokens that are um, that have been used to offset the carbon and uh, you get some benefit from that they're fungible you can turn them into pesos or euros or or, or, or whatever and um, and we use economic incentives to mobilize billions of people and institutions around the world. So that's kind of one thing that can be done. I mean, blockchain is key to building a decentralized um, green power grid, and we need that too. Blockchain is going to be key to the reinvention of our entire indus uh, energy industry. So um, yes, absolutely. Uh, this technology can not only make a difference, I don't think we can solve this problem without it. Mm -hmm. And well, before uh, wrapping up our conversation, I wanted to talk about a conference where I'm sure that many of these topics that we discussed will be brought up. I know that in a few days, uh, the Blockchain Research Institute will co-host <coughs> the uh, Web3 and Blockchain World W3D conference. So I wanted to ask you, like, uh, what is conference about? Why W3B? I mean, if you could please share some ideas about this conference with our listeners. Well, it's called W3B, Web3 and Blockchain World. It's in Toronto, November 8th and 9th. Toronto, November 8th and 9th. It's coming up. And uh, we've got leaders from uh, countries all around the world uh, who are coming here and going to participate. You know, we did this in, in 2019, before the pandemic, we had 1200 people, very senior crowd, fabulous event, a big black tie awards ceremony. And then during the pandemic, we had to go online. Um, I thought we did a good job, but I didn't like it. Uh, we hired a, we had a TV studio for the week. It looked like CNN rather than Zoom. We had 19 technicians, cameramen, microphone people, broadcasters, and so on. Um, we had 210 speakers, attendees from 45 countries, but people would stay around for 15 minutes for a session. And there was not, none of the magic that happens when people get together face-to-face. -face. So we are getting together face-to-face -face November 8th and 9th in Toronto. And, um, uh, the theme is a lot of fun. It's the Canadian summer camp model. So it won't look like a conference so much. Main lodge presentations, fireside chats, campfires, lunches, or cookouts and conversations. Now, I don't want to overstate this because this is all at a convention center, <laughs> but um, we'll have some great music, fantastic food. We're having the W3B Awards, big gala awards ceremony on Monday night, November 8th. Uh, Fortune is our media partner for the event. And um, the night before is a very special uh, announcement by a company called Decentral. And um, they have a, a whole new initiative called Adiami, which is a, a hardware product that's a blockchain in a box. 
and uh, the and it will run any blockchain. The idea is that we're all going to own these things all around the world, billions of people, and this will enable us to have a truly decentralized Web three. It's a very bold initiative. Comes from Anthony Diorio, who was one of the um, founders of Ethereum. So that'll be a big fancy announcement on the Monday night, November the sixth. But uh, people want to go uh, know more. Go to w3bworld.com. Um, That's w3bworld.com. I'm going to add the link later on the below the video when I post it. But I'm looking forward to this conference and I encourage uh, well, as many people as possible to attend it because we're talking about very relevant topics, very relevant speakers. So I'm sure uh, any attendee will learn a lot from, from all yes. of you. And In fact, um, what I would like to offer is if people want to send me an email, I'll give them a discount. Anyone who's listened to this podcast, a significant discount. And here's my email. It's dawn at w3bworld.org, don at w3bworld.org. Just send me an email and, and uh, I'll give you my chairman's discount. Awesome, awesome. Thank you very much. I'm sure that many people will use this uh, discount. I mean, we're talking about very relevant topics, very relevant speakers. So it's been an absolute pleasure, Don, to host you today. I could learn a lot from you by listening to you about uh, your books and blockchain and, and all these topics that we covered. And I'm sure that my audience will learn a lot from you as well. So it's an honor for me to host you. Well, it was a delightful uh, interview and uh, great to talk to you. The pleasure was mine and well to all my listeners. Thank you very much for listening to this episode. And please stay tuned for the next ones. See you soon. Yeah.